Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Uh, we conclude our look at these two verses this morning. Again, have it in front of you. Look at it. Let just the feel of the page, the look of the print and the type, uh, just that whole experience sink the Word of God into your mind and in, into your heart. So we look uh, this morning at verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, um, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, before we start, let me um, uh, remind you of something that uh, you probably know, uh, but it's worth mentioning anyway, and that is that you were created in the image of God. When God was bringing the whole universe into being, um, when he was designing the purpose and the meaning of every aspect of creation from the planets and the stars to the living things, the seas, the mountains, the cattle of the field, all that, when God was bringing creation into existence, he had something in mind. And so when he got to the creation of the human race, he said, let's make man in our image and so male and female, he created them. But he said, let us make man in our image. That is that human beings are not just another part of creation the way uh, sea slugs are and uh, starfish and uh, mountains and rocks. Um, human beings are part of creation with the express purpose of reflecting who God is. God said, I'll, I'll make you in the image of God. Now, he didn't say, I'll make you God. He did not say, I'm going to make you the ones worthy of worship. I'm not going to make you the center of attention and the focal point of the reason for uh, creation itself. He, he didn't say, I'm going to make you God. But he did say, I will make you the image of God. And so we are created in God's image. And that means that everything we are, everything we do, everything we say is to be a reflection of who God is. That is the purpose of your creation. If you wake up tomorrow morning, you say, I wonder what I should do with my day. Now, what should I do with my day? Here's what you do. Reflect who God is. Just in everything you do, just make God known by the way you speak, by the way you act, by the way you relate to other people, make him known. If you're ever in one of those moments, you say, what should I do with my life? You know, I'm having one of those crises of career, and, and you know, the, uh, where do I go? Where do I turn? You want to know what to do with your life? Here's what you do. Reflect the image of God in everything you are and all that you say and do, because that's why you were created. You're created in the image of God. That's why when you are living a life that is God-like, that is to say godly, when you're living in a holy, godly lifestyle, things just seem to fall into place. I know you still have the problems. I know the, the persecution still comes. I know that the challenges to you and to your faith still come. But when you're living a godly, godlike existence, reflecting who he is as the image of God, 
That's when you are being satisfied and fulfilled from the deepest part of who you are, the deepest part of your being. And so these other things, it might be challenges and problems and heartaches and those kinds of things, they are not the reality that's shaping you, but rather the internal reality of who God is is what's shaping you. And so when you're living a godly life, you are reflecting the image of God, and that's why things are just going better. Not as the world counts it, but in in terms of eternity, things are just going better. And that is why when you are living apart from God, when you are living in contradiction to who God is, when your life is not in harmony, in, uh, in concert with the nature of God, that's why things are falling apart. Yeah, the business deals might go through. Yeah, you might have the extra income and the cars and the houses and all that. But deep down within, you know there's something wrong. And you know that there's got to be more to life than just this stuff. And so when you live a godly life, God-like life, you're reflecting the image of God. Everything's working as, as it's designed to be. You're, you're fulfilling the reason you were created. And when you're living in contradiction to God, when you're living outside of the scope of who God is, that's when things are falling apart at the deepest levels of who you are. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? We're not moving on until someone says amen. amen. <laughs> Everybody said, yeah, we've got to get out of here. <laughs> So you were created in the image of God to reflect the goodness of God and the holiness of God, to reflect all the things that are godlike and godly in your existence. The problem is that we are not doing that, and so we are alienated from God and alienated from ourselves and alienated from who we're supposed to be. So that, that, that's where I wanted to start, was just to remind you that you're created in the image of God. The purpose of your life is to reflect who God is. Now, look with me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, and uh, we're going to start in the middle, work our way to the end, and then go back to the front. Uh, This is how you know I have a PhD. I can do things backwards this way. (laughs) But I want to start in the middle with that word righteousness. Paul says, if righteousness were of the law. That word righteousness. Now, just the etymology of the word, where it comes from, it just means to be set in a straight line, to be um, just set uh, and justified that that is, uh, you know, lined up with where you need to be. So uh, just the um, uh, simple dictionary meaning of the word is you're lined up with where you need to be. But when we see that word righteousness, the first thing we need to think about is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Now, understand that everything God is, God is entirely. In other words, it's not as though there are little bits and pieces of God, and here's a piece of God that is righteous, and oh, over here is a piece of God that is love, and over here is a piece of God that is wisdom, and over here is a piece of God is truth, and so it's all together, righteousness and love and joy and peace, you know, those kinds of things. You put them all together, and that will collectively add up to God. No, everything God is, he is entirely. So if you say the love of God, God is love entirely. There's nothing about God that is not love. There's nothing about God that is not loving. There's nothing about God that is not known by the deepest experience of God's creative, sacrificial love for us in Christ. And so when we say God is love, everything that God is, is love. But then if we talk about God as truth, everything that God is, is truth. 
It's not as though a part of him is true or there's a little segment of God's brain that is looking and saying, oh, that's true, that's true. And No, God is truth, and everything that God is is truth. Wait a minute, I just said everything that God is is love. We're talking about God here. So everything is love, everything is truth. No, just go down the list, and everything that God is is righteous. Everything that God is is absolutely righteous. That means his love is righteous, his truth is righteous, his mercy is righteous, his creativity is righteous, his compassion is righteous. Everything that God is is righteous. So when we see that word righteousness, we think, first of all, of the righteousness of God. That is, the word righteousness expresses the very character and nature of who God is. Now, having said that, let's go back to where we started, the image of God. We're created in the image of God to reflect who God is. What is God? God is, among other things, we must say, God is entirely righteous. That means he is entirely good. There's nothing bad in God at all. Everything God does is good. Everything God does is righteous. Everything God does works for the welfare and the good of his children. Everything God does brings about a turning to him to give him the glory. Everything that God does in our lives can be counted as something drawing us to the goodness of God. So God is righteous. God is entirely good. That's why we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his righteousness. That's why we know that everything God does in our lives ultimately is for our good and for the good of his creation and for his glory. Now, I'm going to grant you that sometimes we don't see it, and sometimes we can't tell it. There are some times when uh, that whole God works for my good thing, we just say, well, maybe in heaven I'll, I'll, I'll understand it. And, you know, it just might be true that we'll all understand it better by and by. It's just that way. But what we do know that everything God does in your life is good because he is entirely righteous. Everything God does in your life is just. You know, everything he does is absolutely, in the word of the day, fair. Everything God does is absolutely expressive of the perfection of his justice in our lives. So everything God does is just. It's not as though anyone can go to God and say, God, you know, you were unfair to me. You did something for him that you didn't do for me. You did something for her that you did not do for me. We cannot go to God and say, you've been unfair to me because the righteousness of God means that he's entirely holy and completely just and fair towards us. And the righteousness of God means that he is completely and without fail loving towards us. Now, one of the things we do need to keep in mind is that sin is an offense to God. Sin is just uh, um, absolutely uh, 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 just horrendous before God. But in our sin, God's wrath engendered upon our sin, but God is still completely totally love. And we know that this way, because even though we sinned against God, he showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were still in rebellion against God, God took the weight and the burden of our sins upon himself. And so God is completely, entirely loving. And the righteousness of God means all these things. It means he, he, he is complete and total in his character and nature of love, justice, righteousness, fairness, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. All those things are reflective of the character and nature of God. So when we see that word righteousness, the first thing we think about is the righteousness of God, which is the totality of who God is and the totality of the expression of God in his works in our midst. That's one of the words, righteousness. Now, connecting that again with the fact that we are to be in the image of God, we are to reflect his righteousness. In other words, when, when someone looks at your life and they see a marvelous person, and they do, and, they, and they're just astounded at how wise and good you are, and they are, and they just remark to their neighbors that you are just the most fantastic person who ever walked the face of the earth, and they do that, Right? in your dreams but you know <laughs> conceivably they could but when anyone sees anything noteworthy or notable in us the way god has designed the universe is that the next thing they would say is glory to god i see god in that person the greatest compliment to the believer is that i see jesus in you that i see god's glory in you we were created to reflect who God is and so if God is totally righteous we were created to be righteous to reflect the righteousness of God now the problem is that we have sinned against God we, we've just told God to take a hike we've told God that we don't want him to be sovereign over who we are we don't want him telling us what to do we don't want him uh, shaping our character and our nature we don't want to be the image of God that's what our sin is and having rejected the righteousness of God having rejected the image of God now we are sinners twisted distorted and perverted in in our nature and in our character so that God is no longer seen in us and we are actually found in rebellion as enemies against God and the result of that is the eternal wrath of God that we deserve coming down upon us. So you see that word righteousness, you see the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we ought to have reflecting who God is, our sin that has denied that righteousness, and now we deserve the wrath of God. But there is one person in history who has satisfied the righteousness of God, and that is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ who knew no sin at all. Jesus Christ who's the very righteousness of God, who's the love and the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness, uh, the wisdom, all the, the power of God. This Jesus Christ absolutely is the image of God in a way that we are not. That's why when you come to Jesus Christ and you ask him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, when you give your life to Christ to follow him as Lord, he becomes sovereign over who you are. What happens then is the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life to do what? Romans says to conform us to the image of God's dear Son. And as we are conformed to the image of Christ, then we are being conformed to the image of God, then we are fulfilling what is our destiny, what is the determined purpose for our existence. And so in Christ, we are being fulfilled as human beings in what we ought to have been all along. 
So in that word righteousness, we see what God wants for us, what we have rejected, and that what God has restored in Christ to us. Because here's what happened. On the cross, that wrath that we deserved, the wrath for our sin, the judgment for our sin, the penalty, the guilt, the weight for our sin that we deserved, that wrath of God was taken and it was put on Christ. He bore the wrath for us in our place. And the righteousness of Christ, that wonderful, beautiful, righteous holiness of Jesus Christ was taken and it was given to us. The wrath of God that we deserve given to Christ. The righteousness of Christ that he alone could accomplish given to us. And that happened on the cross when Jesus Christ died for us. And so we come to know righteousness as we come to know Christ who died on the cross for us. And that is the only way we know the righteousness of God. That's what we find in the word righteousness. You saw that there. I just wanted to pull it up. But then the question is, how do you get the righteousness of God? Paul says, if righteousness were through the law. We'll just stop there. That's one possible answer. A lot of people think this is the answer. In fact, I would dare say most human beings on planet Earth think that that's the answer. Righteousness comes through the law. Now understand the law that Paul was talking about. He was talking about the Torah, the law given to the children of Israel, the law that was inspired and and given by God, spoken to Moses, given to the people, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that express what God wanted the people to do and how he wanted them to live. In other words, the Torah given so that they might know how to live in order to reflect the righteousness of God. I mean, the Torah is a wonderful gift. The law is a marvelous gift of God to us. Paul spends a great deal of time in his writings uh, teasing out the, the actual function of the law. We'll see some of that later on in Galatians. But that's the law he's talking about, this wonderful, beautiful law that God has given to us. And if you had asked Paul before he came to Christ, before the road to Damascus, if you said, Paul, what is the answer to get the righteousness of God in our lives? He would have said, it's through the law. It's by keeping the law. It's by observing all those 600-odd Uh, commandments that we've identified and what you can and cannot do to the nth degree. It's by having a holiness in your life that is determined and defined by the law. That's how you get to be righteous, by being a religious person. Here's why I say most people think that. If you ask them, are you going to heaven, what's the first thing they say? I think I'm basically a good person. Now, we already know how... uh, why that, that, that's sort of a silly thing, but you say, I'm, I'm a good person. Why? Well, I, I don't hurt anybody. I try not to hurt anybody. You know, a lot of people think that's God's standard for holiness. Do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. Well, that would make Robinson Crusoe the, the most holy man who ever walked the face of the earth. Parents, explain that to your children. You know, I just, I just try not to hurt anybody. How do you know who you're hurting, by the way? But the standard of God's righteousness is not just that you're a nice guy who doesn't hurt anybody. Well, I always tell the truth, and, and I always try to do the right thing. That's, a, that, that's marvelous, but that, that doesn't create the image of God in you. It, 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 let's see if I can put it to you this way. You remember the time the, uh, 
uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. If you don't, I'll tell you about it. There's a, a, a guy who came to Jesus. He was rich and he was young. He was also a ruler. <laughs> and he, uh, he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven? You know, what, what do I need to do to see the kingdom of God? You know, what do I need to do in order to have my life exactly where God wants it to be? And Jesus said, well, you know, there's these things called the commandments. Have you, have you bothered with those? And, and this young man, he says, Jesus, I have kept all the commandments from my youth up. From the moment I became aware of and committed to the commandments of God, I have kept all of them. I mean, this is a pretty big claim, but nobody in the crowd stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, how about, or how about, or how about. Everybody listening in, Jesus himself didn't challenge him on that. Could have, but didn't. He said, for the sake of the argument, let's understand that you have kept all the commandments of God. Have you kept all the commandments of God? Every last one of them? All of them? But this man said, I've kept all the commandments. Jesus said, that's great, that's great, but you lack one thing. What is that? You need to go and sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, follow me. Because as Jesus looked at this young man, it wasn't the outward expression of, of goodness and religion that, that impressed Jesus at all. He looked into this man's heart and he saw there someone who was in bondage to material stuff. He saw there someone who was taking pride in the fact that he had a lot of wealth. He saw there someone who thought that if I've got a lot of money, that must mean God loves me more than the guy who's poor. So in, in other words, my wealth is the proof that I'm okay with God. Jesus said, here's the one thing you lack. You've got to give up your self-righteousness. You've got to give up your pride. You've got to give up believing that you are somehow special because you've got a lot of stuff. You've got to get rid of it. Give it to the poor. Then you need to follow me. You need to take up a cross and follow me. And the man went away sad because he had much wealth, many possessions. In point of fact, many possessions had him. And he was chained and shackled to them. Uh, what he didn't realize was that righteousness in your life, conforming to the image of God, is not a matter of outward expression. It's an inward heart thing. And that's why the law cannot bring about the righteousness of God any more than psychoanalysis can. Look, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in counseling. I think we're all nuts. and We'd all benefit from counseling. But it will not create in you the image of God. I'm a believer in doing good things. I think we ought to be charitable. I, I, I'm hoping that you first tithe to the church and then you give 1% or 2% more to other outside ministries and other outside uh, 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 charities so that, that you're involved in helping the poor. I, I, I hope that's a part of your life, and I believe in those kinds of things. But that will not create the image of God in your heart. Only God can create the image of God. Only God can create the image of God. That's why in the Ten Commandments it says, you, you, know, you, you shall not make a graven image. You not make an idol. Don't try to make an image of God. Why? You can't do it. You can't do it with an idol, and you can't do it within yourself. You cannot create the image of God within yourself. 
Only God can do that. And so the, the answer that says, well, I, if I'm just a religious person or if I'm just a good person or I'm just a moral person, that cannot create the image of God's righteousness in us. Only God can do that. So Paul would have given that answer. He would have said, yeah, religion. That would be it. Most of the people in the world say, yeah, that's it. The answer is religion. Spin the prayer wheels, ring the bells, light the candles, chant the chants, study under the guru. But the image of God comes only from the hand of God. And so Paul says, if righteousness, if being set right with God, if being conformed to the image of God through Jesus Christ, if that came through the law, if it came through human effort, if it came through religion, if it came through a philosophy or a lifestyle, if it came any other way, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If there's some other way other than the cross, then Jesus died for no purpose. The Greek word there for no purpose um, it, it, a good translation for it would be gratuitous. Gratuitous. You know about gratuitous violence? That, that's when uh, uh, Hollywood used to have movies in the old days that, uh, you know, the movie would be going along and suddenly there'd be this violent fight scene and, and shooting and zapping and destruction and booming and special effects and all that. You know, back, back in, in before enlightened days today. But, you know, Hollywood would just throw in a, a bunch of violence that had nothing to do with the story. That's gratuitous. And you know for a fact, you know, that Hollywood throws in a sex scene in a movie and a, and a, um, and a television show that has nothing to do with the story. That's gratuitous. It's something that's just shoved in there that has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Paul says, if righteousness comes through religion, philosophy, morality, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ's death is gratuitous. The cross was just stuck in there, but you really didn't need it. If there's some other way to God other than the cross. Folks, as believers in Christ, if there's some other way, we ought to take it. We love him. We love Jesus that much. If there's some way for my sins to be forgiven that doesn't require the death of Christ, I ought to take it, don't you think? If there's some other way to have the stain of my sins washed out other than the blood of Christ, I ought to take that. You know, even if it's some, you know, crazy system that says, well, uh, here's what you have to do. When you die, you will go to a place of purgation, and there you will suffer for a million, million, zillion, million years, and then your sins will be clean, and you can go to heaven. Folks, we ought to go there to keep Christ from suffering. We love him that much. But all the, all the fire of eternity cannot purge sin from you. Only the blood of Jesus can. If there's any other way, then the cross is useless. That's why this, this idea that all religions lead to God cannot be true 
Because if all religions lead to God, that means you can get to God by chanting. You can get to God by meditating. You can get to God by, uh, by rule-keeping. You can get to God by ceremony and by liturgy. It means you can get to God in all those ways. And if you can get to God those ways, then no one should ever go through the cross of Christ. But because Jesus died for us, there is only one way to the righteousness of God. And that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. He, he says, if righteousness, if, if being right with God could come through the law, then Christ died pointlessly, uselessly, gratuitously for no purpose. Now we go to the front of the verse. That's why he begins by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. He says, I'm not going to do a thing that would set the grace of God to one side. That's, that's what that word nullify means in the Greek, literally. It means to take the grace of God. I'm not going to shove it off to one side and talk about anything else. He says, I'm not going to nullify the grace of God because if righteousness could come some other way than grace, if it could come through the law, and Christ died for no purpose, and, and, we're all, and we're all just terribly, terribly misguided at best. He says, but I'll not nullify the grace of God. What does this mean? It means this morning, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and the Holy Spirit works on your heart, and you realize the depth of your sin and rebellion against God, and you have lived so long in frustration, trying to be good, and knowing you just can't get there. The Holy Spirit wakes you up. By grace, you're saved, and you put your faith in Jesus. It means that if you're a believer in Christ, and you've, and you've been just sort of frustrated in your Christian walk because every time you turn around, you're finding some new obstacle and some new stumbling block and some other challenge, and, and you're just starting to get, get sort of uh, frustrated with, with, with your own capacity. Folks, if the righteousness God, of God came to you by your own capacity, then Christ died for nothing, but it is grace. It is the grace of God on the cross. And so in your Christian walk, it is the grace of God. I, don't set aside the grace of God. Live and walk in the grace of God. And it means when we all get to heaven, we start sharing our testimonies. We start singing at the top of our lungs with notes never before heard before. We sing a new song. We'll be singing about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's, that's where Paul comes. He says, look, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And therefore, because of that, I cannot set aside the grace of God. I cannot set aside the grace of God because if righteousness came any other way, this cross in which, with which I've been crucified, this cross with which Christ loved me is pointless. And the whole thing just falls apart. So, beloved, the cross is enough. It's enough to be born again. The cross is enough to live a new life. 
The cross is enough to go through trial and tribulation. The cross is enough to go through the valley of the shadow of death. The cross is enough to bring you to heaven. The cross is enough to put you into uh, the courts of glory. And the cross is enough to inspire you for all eternity to sing praises to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, how I praise and thank you for the cross of Jesus. How I thank you that righteousness does not come by our efforts, but comes by your grace. How I thank you that we didn't have to figure this out, but your Holy Spirit has opened our eyes and our hearts to the reality of who you are and what you have done in Christ. Father, how I thank you that the Holy Spirit works even now, even in this place, even in the hearts of those gathered here, to bring about confession, to bring about commitment and devotion, that we might be pleasing to you as you work in us through Christ. Father, I thank you for it all. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.